Welcome everyone to the Money Morning Podcast. Today I will be speaking with Angus Mafadi. Angus is the CEO of Agturay, a ag tech company that uses satellite imagery and machine learning to smooth out the financial planning of farm. I know that sounds super niche, but I'll let Angus explain how important this could be for the future of our global food supply chain. So let's get into it. Angus, how's it going? Hey, thanks, Lachlan. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Um, yeah, well, I suppose let's like I'll just sort of answer that question straight off the bat and say the like there's the reason why what we're doing I don't think is so is so niche and why there's uh, it specifically with the industry is because we're we're thinking about particularly the um, we start at least we started out thinking about the agricultural lending space and that just in Australia alone is a $60 billion industry. And like that's projected to nearly double over the next 10 years. Right. Um, and you look, you look at these metrics around like uh, debt and agriculture funding and the, uh, this, the same sort of debt funded industry model is replicated all across the world, you know, like all across North America, uh, South America, as well as Europe, like uh, Western and Eastern Europe. Um, and you, you can see the same same model and same practices um, being used and have been used, uh, particularly in agricultural lending, but that haven't really changed uh, since the uh, since the eighties or nineties. Basically, you know, I think the the last great innovation um, for for this space was really the spreadsheet. So it, it's been a while since that's wow. been around, um, and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, new practices and sort of particularly leveraging modern computing that, and like modern software design that can really enhance what's happening in the space. Uh, that, that being said, yeah, well, I suppose what we're doing is a little bit more outside of that as well, um, where we're using satellite imagery. And so uh, the, what we can do with satellite imagery, and partic- uh, like particular thanks to you know, government agencies like NASA and the European, European Space Agency that have uh, basic, effectively built these constellations of imaging satellites and now releasing this imagery like in regular updates, like roughly every three to five days um, uh, for free for the whole world. And like there's, you know, there's entire, like there's been a multi-billion dollar global industry built off the backs of these data sets. And so we're we're leveraging leveraging some of those um, to help uh, help do macro level analysis of what's what's shifting and changing in the agricultural landscape. so pardon the pun on that no, one. No, no, it's, no, uh, no. But, but, but effectively, what, what we can do is we can use, we can use derived metrics, uh, some machine learning uh, techniques as well. I mean, some other statistical techniques to evaluate you know, how, like, how the global system is. Um, this, like, well, you can do it globally, but we're specifically focusing on Australia for now because you do need a lot of ground data to validate your analytics. Um, yeah, so it's yeah. a big expense up front to build confidence in say the metrics you're putting out. But effectively, we're looking at um, primarily in-season risk. And so how, how are uh, different sections of the agriculture market uh, heavily focused on grain, grains at the moment, but then also, uh, but that also branches out into pasture-driven businesses like uh, beef and sheep as well. Okay. Um, and so the, what you can do is using satellite metrics, you can look at you know, derivative metrics from uh, around biomass um, and then also and that translates quite nicely into things like estimating yield for very specific commodity types and so you can forecast with confidence also using uh, weather data as well Um, you know that's like rainfall historical um, as well as a bunch of other 
like a whole bunch of other data feeds, things like land surface temperature, you know, how, how much like radiation energy, like from the sun, like over a given period. And this all comes together to build uh, effectively leading indicators of where the say end of season harvest, like what that's going to look like. Um, and so we, um, and so we provide effectively uh, leading indicators around you know, uh, where say the portfolio of the bank is going to look like, but also on the purchasing side, um, you know, where potential contracts uh, might, uh, might lead to or, uh, or leading indicators of where pricing might be around agricultural commodities. Well, well, that is, uh, that, that's a lot to digest right there. But uh, I think I read somewhere that the, the amount of debt uh, tied to farms at the moment has tripled in a certain period of time. And, and, and the fact that, well, I mean, so many farmers just have a, a big difficulty sometimes securing finance. Uh, and and the sort of lead time on that would be eight weeks or so sometimes to uh, get financing or or even insurance on a yield perhaps. Uh, so this sounds like a, a really sort of innovative way of addressing problems, not just for farmers, but for uh, the purchasers as well. And also the sort of institutions that underwrite that whole process. So. Yeah, um, look, that, I mean, that, and that's exactly it. Like, I'll just sort of bite off that first first part around. Um, I, I suppose one of the things that I didn't say, yeah, in, uh, in what I what I was getting to before is, uh, because of these outdated lending practices, and because of say new te- techniques and methods of information collection like we're doing are available now. Uh, effectively, like we're great, we're bringing a lot of um, like rich data and information to a very information poor space. You know, there's um, like, there's a lot of lending practices that, you know, it, they have worked and they've worked reasonably well um, for the banks, like up until a point. But now, but now there's a lot of, I suppose, shit, like shifting in terms of like the way that practices are managed. There's a lot of banks consolidating their lending teams into regional centers. And there's a lot less visiting of um, visiting like on-site visits with the farms themselves, um, or and effectively the industry is heading more and more that way um, to be at more like remote inspections. Um, and so, re- really, it's a data-poor environment that we're able to bring uh, effectively non-financial data sets to the table um, to be able to um, provide extra context around like around these farms. And nine nine times out of ten, like. Uh, even just supplying like complete information, like let, let's yeah. not even talk about um, you know the data sets that we can supply, but just supplying complete financial information, like about a farm, like longer term financial histories, you know, longer just longer than three years, like of the business's financial history, can say uh, can save you around about half a percent on your loan rates, and so wow. there's a there's a distinct sort of a lack of I don't know, a- emphasis just around like we need more information in this space to help drive better, uh, you know, more more accurate pricing around these loans. Um, where you have where and where you have to look at agricultural businesses, why why it's maybe slightly different to a regular business is like you really have to look at you know maybe five year lives like five to ten year sort of uh, time scales because you have these big big fluctuations in uh, seasonality and performance, yeah. you know, that can dip in and out where you have, you know, cash flows, which have come off like a really good year, like the one that we've just had, 
um, that can supply cash flow for the farm for the next, you know, two to three years potentially. Yeah. Um, and so there's, yeah, there's a, there's so much nuance when it comes to ag. And then, you know, once you like, you can look at say grains as a whole sector, but then you really need to look at, you know, each individual commodity, you know, like, like wheat and then even quality, quality uh, grades of wheat and then, you know, barley and canola yeah. and all the rest of it. Um, and so, I mean, we, when it, when it comes to grains, we're focused on, uh, wheat, barley, and canola, um, for the winter crop. Um, we've been doing sorghum and cotton for the summer harvest here in Australia, um, and supplying information around that. But yeah, but effectively, yeah, it's, it's, there's a, there is, there is a lot of nuance when it comes to this, but you know, that's just even, even at a cursory level and a macro level, there's just not enough information flowing around and like more information and including the information that uh, we can supply when thinking about a specific farmer going for a loan, uh, the additional data sets and say benchmarks that we can provide, um, you know, more, more often than not uh, can lead to like a better, more secure rate because it gives the credit team say in the, at the lending institution, much more confidence around the stability of that, uh, like the farming asset, but also the farm as a business as well. Yeah, well, um, I guess my next question is, how much data do you work with? Like, is there, uh, is there some? Is I imagine it would be absolutely massive, but uh, and I and you did mention the sort of data type, sort of types of data you're working with. Um, yeah, I mean, is it just absolutely too much to wrap your head around sometimes, or? Uh, I mean, not not so much. I mean, for for us being a startup, it's more of a more a question of personnel, like resources. I mean, it's okay. I I suppose I would so, I always think of it. It's one of those good pre- questions to have, where or sorry, good problems to have, where um, like we could always use more people on the team <laughs> to to, yeah. to cover all the work that we've got. Um, but in terms of like just the size of data, I mean, we're we're looking at data sets that are maybe you know hundred gigabytes a few terabytes that, yeah. that kind of level because i mean it, like what, what we're working with so imagine we've got we're downloading like satellite imagery you know probably every one to two weeks um that cover say the whole east coast of australia for instance yeah um, or, as, or as well sometimes including western australia and that's um you know on a 10 meter grid so i think you know, you've got let's say uh you know, in terms of individual data points, we're probably looking at you know a few billion data points across Gee, across yeah. that. So in terms of big data, you know, like you know, like the size the size of the data sets that like Facebook and Google collect, it's really yeah. not much. But <laughs> <laughs> in turn, I mean, it's still you know, uh, you know, we could still run analyses on uh like our like our local sort of like computers. So we don't. It's not hundred percent necessary that we're using like cloud server infrastructure to run big computational analysis. Um, I mean, if you talk to my CTO, you know, his, uh, his it, office is, is probably really overheated from his computer just working yeah. in overdrive. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's still sort of, you know, be like definitely big in scope. You know, we're looking at, you know, continental scale um, uh, analysis in terms of the satellite imagery, but it, it's kind of part of the course when when you're looking when you're doing remote sensing, um, particularly okay. for the kind of work that we're doing. Yeah. Well, um, I, I don't know what your background is. Maybe maybe you're more of a data scientist kind of guy, or you you classify yourself as that. But um, 
I read somewhere recently that uh, they pitted in a competition a whole bunch of data scientists up against uh, strawberry growers. And these data scientists have never done farming before. And I mean, I was not surprised, but I think other people would be surprised. And these were the best strawberry growers in the world. And yeah, the data scientists absolutely blew them out of the water. It wasn't even close. The quality, the yield. Um, yeah, so I think it's really interesting, this intersection between data and agriculture that is potentially the wave of the future and the way we're going. Because as you said, it was a it's sort of a data poor uh, industry in that people still are looking up at the the sky and being like, oh, I think it'll be a good uh, good good year this year for us, or oh, that's an ominous sign. I don't like that one. And it's it's so nice to sort of in some ways uh, eliminate human error or heuristics from from the the whole process in a way that hopefully gets more people fed because at the end of the day we all need to eat. Yeah, no, no, that's that's definitely the case, and I, I would say it's it's definitely not. Uh, I would say it's not quite as unsophisticated um, as that. Um, you know, it's yeah. not so much <laughs> like you know, licking your finger and sticking in the air and feeling which way is the wind blowing, but it's it's the the industry in terms of on the farming side of things is becoming very very sophisticated when it comes to uh, data as well as the and the tools that they use. Um, I would say this is a lot of this because there's a huge industry of uh, agriculture advisors, both in Australia and around the world. A lot of a lot of the technology um, is being driven through adoption by agro professional agronomist advisors. Um, and it, I mean, this is just for ag tech companies. It's just a you know, it's a smart move. It's like how Zero used uh, accountants as like they're effectively their distributor to sell yeah. their products. You know, you. You, if you're selling a, a product to a farmer, you're you're probably better off getting or getting scale faster by either selling um, selling the capabilities to enhance their work an agronomist agronomist does, or a business or a financial planner or business advisor in that respect. And so, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but also, you know, they're the people with the expertise to really leverage it because there's there is a education gap when it comes to a lot of particularly precision agriculture. Um, if you've never used it before, you're looking at satellite imagery. You're kind of like, what the hell is this telling yeah. me, really? Yeah. <laughs> and so you have a lot of uh, there's a lot of a lot of that gap is filled by um, agronomists who you know either receive the training or know how to use it or know how to convert that into um, something meaningful. And now a lot of particularly the precision ag platforms, are, you know, they are either hiring or working with agronomists themselves, and they're basically pulling putting all of that agronomist knowledge into this into the software you know there's a couple of really like really great um australian companies uh fluorosat's one of them only they okay. did just change their name they they bought a u.s company uh for, I yeah, they changed i'll look it. into it don't worry yeah i'm, I'm actually pretty excited about this uh this potential ag tech boom um and it might be something i talk to my subscribers about uh for the Stock picking newsletter I run, um, but but I think uh, one of the themes we've been discussing recently is sort of what's happening in the commodity space and the potential that inflation could drive commodity prices higher as a sort of hedge. And I looked at the soybean chart recently, and it's just gone through the roof. Um, and you you might be aware of some of these broader sort of big moves for a number of different commodities in the last 12 months or so, um, particularly with agricultural commodities. 
and and I think before you we came on, uh, you mentioned that commodity traders are now coming to you for a certain uh, products or services or or your data sets. And I was I was sort of hoping you could tell us a bit more about what you see happening in in that area. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, just I mean, I, maybe I should get into my background just a little bit to preface. Yeah, this. like I, like I, I'm not a commodity trader, like uh, by any standing. Um, you know, I I do I do have a little bit of fun um, tra- trading crypto on Binance, but that's about as okay. far as my trading expertise go. Um, like my my background, and same with my uh, co-founder Matthew. Um, we're both like, effectively data scientists. Um, our backgrounds in aerospace technologies. I used to, you know, use applied machine learning, write code to optimize, um, like design of uh, spacecraft engines. Wow. Um, and then, so long story short, you know, got sick of working in a big company. Did, did a stint with Airbus. Um, wow. Really discovered I was an ant in an ant hill, and sort of kept moving towards smaller teams and smaller companies until eventually. Um, you know, I thought I had enough ideas of my own that uh, I convinced Matthew to <laughs> to quit to quit yeah. working full time, and you know, we started AgTree. You know, around this hypothesis that we could bring non-financial data sets into financial decision making in agriculture. Um, uh, but yeah, but effectively, yeah. So when it comes to the commodity traders, and it's tip- it's not your, I would say it's not the way you, that you would view typical traders. Like these guys are actually buying hard assets, storing them at uh, locations and in infrastructure, and then, then exporting them overseas. They've got um, big players in the space like uh, Grain Corp or, or, um, uh, or some of the guys out on the east, east coast. Like they're, they're going, they've got ground teams that are going to the farms and buying, you know, buying, you know, contracts either pre-harvest or you know post-harvest and getting trucks shipped out uh, uh to the to the farms to fill up on grain and take them to ports yeah um and so like say these big companies have you know they have trading desks they have trading teams that analyze all kinds of signals and they have to respond to you know international market pressures um all over the place just because you know they're trying to sell you know, the majority of what they buy overseas um they're they're interested in what we're we're doing because we can help um, we can help them when it comes to forming an idea of where they think the local pricing should be. So we're providing like obviously macro level estimates around, um, you know, around things like you know, how much is grown of what, what commodity type and where, and then also estimates in season of how many, how many tons you can expect at the end of that season. Um, okay. And, and also monitoring, you know, how much has been harvested, you know, during, uh, during the, during the end of season period as well. And so that, that helps them to form a coherent picture around where potentially pricing is headed at like these local exchange sites, because you've got, you know, hundreds of different uh, basically depots or exchanges like around, around the country or even just on the East coast, there's hundreds of these where they all have slightly different pricings per ton um, for grain. And so there, this is informing them to know what, you know, at what price they they can either reasonably expect or what price maybe they want to ha- hold out for if they think uh, either an asset's over or undervalued. And so this is, this is all the stuff when I was, uh, I guess when I was talking about earlier, like leading indicators for, you know, yeah. pricing risk really. Um, and, and effectively it's the, it's the same kind of uh, metric. It's, I mean, when it comes to finances, everything's about yeah. risk, you know, what's your risk in a particular asset or of a particular portfolio or, you know, either collection of, uh, 
customers at the end of the day. And so that's that's really what our data is helping to drive on. Okay. Well, uh, we, we all sort of want less risk and being able to make better decisions, uh, particularly in the world of finance, is sort of the holy grail. So I think it's absolutely fascinating that, uh, that your company, I mean, do you, do you have ambitions to scale the business in the near future? And, uh, and, and I'm sure you do, but, uh, but, uh, where, where do you see actuary going in the, the coming years is I know it could be a bit of a difficult question to answer, uh, given that it's relatively early days. Um, yeah, yeah. Look, um, I mean, to be honest, this is something that we've thought about a lot. I mean, we're, I mean, there's, there's a few roads open to us now. Um, like particularly, I would say particularly because of how early it is. And I mean, for us, we're still really discovering, you know, who our core user base is and, you know, really trying to scope the size of the market. Cause the reality is we're in a, we're in a new type of market. We've seen some echoes of what we're doing um, over in the U S I mean, the prime example would be uh, outfits like India, Indigo ag buying Talus labs, I think back in 2017, right? I think it was around, you know, $25 million. And so, Okay. That's that's probably the largest exit of a business like that's doing analysis like ours that we've yeah. seen, um, and I, I guess I'm not uh, I'm not really aware of any other large ones um, besides that as well, and so the size of the market really is unknown at this point. You know, there's yeah. there's maybe at most two other sort of uh, players in this space, um, thinking about satellite imagery, um, agriculture, and finance. Um, and re- and really, there's there's one other company, uh, Digital Agriculture Services. They're working with Rabobank on things like remote valuations using satellite imagery. Okay. So trying trying to value land assets. And so that's that's sort of so that those guys are very much a uh, at least from my perspective a data play. And where where we're looking at moving towards is that like we think the data is really cool and like like really really valuable and really useful. Um, but the other piece of the puzzle that we think is missing is a digital workflow so just frankly just yeah. digital tools software platforms help manage this and the the intersection of uh, like what we're building right now we're probably about three to four weeks away from uh starting beta testing with a, with a few of our um early customers uh, for our digital platform is that we want to bring these bring these analytics into digital workflow tools so it's you're not only getting say your team like your team management and process management but you're also getting that enhanced by these analytics that it can help uh, drive some of the prioritization of where your workforce is looking, but also um, help inform at a high, high level, you know, the health of say your portfolio. Okay. Well, uh, the, these workflow tools are, I guess, essentially in translating uh, the analytics you've got behind in the background into something that actually helps uh, a range of business decision makers um with visualizations i imagine and and things like that so um yeah that that definitely sounds like an exciting advancement for your company and um yeah i mean do you uh, i'm I'm gonna sort of back up a bit here and and ask you sort of a broader question uh because human humans have sort of struggled with uh famine throughout throughout the the millennia so I suppose my next question for you is, uh, do you, do you think this sort of expansion and you only met, you mentioned there are only a few players in the, in the business at the moment. Do you see, do you think, see the potential for sort of large data sets, satellite imagery 
and also machine learning playing into, I guess, fixing up a supply chain that is sort of increasingly under threat, perhaps, from climate change or political factors. I mean, these are big questions for, for humanity as a whole. And, and do you have some sort of driving ethos behind what you do and perhaps a, a hope to, to solve some of these food scarcity issues? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the like one of our original um uh the the original sort of idea that we started on was that you know we could we could use our analytics to help identify um potentially under like underperforming land um or underperforming farms. And the original hypothesis wasn't say for to make sort of advantageous purchases or something where you could see that going, but it was really to look at how do you effectively deploy uh, things like drought relief capital. Um, you know, mm. how do you get? Uh, and th- and this is an ongoing conversation that we're having um, with uh, some of the lenders here in Australia. You know, some of those are the you know big big four banks as well. Whereby you know on, at the individual portfolio level, you have a you know you have a lending manager, and they have uh, maybe between fifty to eighty agricultural clients. Um, generally, like now since I guess the Royal Commission in twenty eighteen more and more of the banks are starting to do what's called full reviews like annually for each of their clients. And so that's collecting a lot of their financial info and updating their information where that, whereas they would traditionally do that maybe on a four year rolling basis. Um, mm. What, uh, what we can, what we see we can help drive is potentially a change in the culture of management of that. Like number one, digital workflow tools. A lot of this is review stuff is done by, you know, paper or just typing like manually entering data. And so we can streamline a lot of that. But additionally, with the analytics being brought in, um, we can give uh, give the portfolio manager an, an overview of who uh, might be facing some trouble at the end of the season. Because we, if you say, tra- you can translate from, you know, potentially like pricing averages around specific co- commodities, you know what's being grown on farm and you can say, okay, maybe let's go talk to this farmer. Let's move up their review, for instance, earlier in the year. This is say, particularly from a bank's perspective. Um, but let's move their review earlier in the year and make sure that um, we work with them so they've got the right financial plan so they don't fall into arrears or, um, you know, even mm. insolvency. Um, and so that's so that's something where you can advance that conversation where traditionally, you know, the bank's getting a call maybe when it's, I don't know, two to three months too late um, versus maybe... already struck. Yeah, that's exactly it. And maybe moving that, you know, moving that conversation potentially six or even up to nine months earlier. Um, so trying to trying to avoid trying to avoid and make plans, you know, so the business continue continue uh, its success into the future. Um, rather than everyone jumping on the phone when it's when uh, when the preferred yeah. bill yeah, has hit the fan. fan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well that's that's really cool. It seems like you've got a, a sort of moral element to what you do as well. And I think that's uh, that's an excellent thing. Um, and this, well, I, well, that's, um, well, that's exactly. I I would probably also add, you know, some of the stuff um, that I mentioned earlier around uh, pricing risk. You know, that commodity traders are interested in. There's also, I mean, there's also an avenue there whereby we can potentially give a- access to farmers themselves, so they know, you know, um, one of the big shifts in in the market, particularly the grains market, is that a lot of the storage, um, the majority of the storage used to be in these big depots run by these, you know, multi-billion dollar grain trading companies. 
Mm. And now in the last couple of years, that's shifting whereby farmers are now buying more and more on-farm storage. So basically silos to store their grain. Um, and I think it's just a last year or the year before where the transition now is like the majority of storage is now on farm. And so there's, so there's a lot more strategy, like effectively strategy when it comes to uh, selling, grain, selling your grain from the farmer's perspective. And so there's a role that we can play in that to give farmers an indicator of, well, no, potentially either the price is going to go up. So uh, hold your grain or potentially the price is going to go down. I mean, again, this is, you know, this is almost trying to, trying to bring the uh, grain, grain trading to the level of, to the same sort of level or insight that you have potentially with either regular stock trading where you have a lot of these, you know, indices or metrics that you can build around uh, build yep. to say try and estimate, uh, make make educated estimates of where potential local pricing might be going. Yeah, and the fact that you're helping out potentially the little guy as well is quite nice because uh, I mean this is just an anecdote, but uh, I I used to have this uh, this relative who had a, a pea and lamb operation, and he uh, he said to me one day, uh, farming is an expensive hobby. Um, so that's sort of the perspective I, I sort of received when I've spent time in country Victoria and, uh, and sort of the, the hardiness and how difficult decision-making is in that environment when you're a small operator is, uh, is very complex. And if you can bring tools to help them make better decisions in a sort of, uh, fluctuating environment, I think that is an absolutely excellent thing. So. Uh, I guess good on you, Angus. Um, no, it's yeah, it's um, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's it's not something that we've built out yet. I mean, it, it's just another one of those like question of resources. And but, I mean, particularly when it comes to that level of pricing, that's pro uh, or like indicators around pricing. That's probably not something that we'll have um, ready for even uh, say like our um, sort of the corporate end of our customers, like for the next you know potentially twelve to eighteen months. And this, okay. this is stuff that we're working on. Yeah, that we're working on now. Um, but uh, obviously, our data is uh, being used to drive uh, drive that decision, to drive those decisions. But we're trying to bring that, bring our, uh, I guess, our capability to bridge that gap more and more forward, so we can almost get to an indicator of where we think, you know, like pricing locally will be. Um, yeah, I, and I suppose, yeah, I suppose on that perspective as well, it's it's really interesting. Like, I mean, my like myself, I mean, you probably picked it up from where I talked about my background is, is you know, we're very much industry outsiders, and we've we've been lucky enough that we've been able to secure investors and advisors who have been in the in this industry for you know the last twenty five or even like last forty years. Yeah, and so. And so we've been able to really learn, like learn really, really quickly about the dynamics in the industry, um, particularly leveraging their experience. Um, and so I suppose one of the things as well, I mean, and the other additional thing is like a whole lot of uh, user research was done. I think maybe 90% of my job is like just talking to customers. You know, mm. I probably, I think we uh, just last year alone, we've probably talked to over the 400 bankers in the ag space. Um, we've then talked wow. to you know, uh, maybe around 60 to 70 um, in the ag accounting space as well, as well, and then as a various mix of like uh, brokers and advisors just across the industry, just to really try and understand the landscape. Um, 
And one of the things that's happening, like much sort of much like the US has maybe potentially already gone through or has gone through, um, is there's a lot of consolidation happening in farming businesses. So um, yeah. the, uh, the idea of farming as a lifestyle or, or, of a, or as kind of like you put it, like <laughs> uh, an expensive hobby, um, it's that kind, of, that kind of attitude toward farming is kind of uh, fading out. You know, the, these are you know, ostensibly quite large businesses, you know, multi, like multi-million dollar assets, uh, people operating, you know, big teams of, uh, of personnel doing like uh, doing a lot of physical labor, like an, uh, an intense labor, you know, uh, throughout certain periods of the year. And there's a lot of, you know, advisors and uh, inputs that go on to, to these businesses. And so I think it seems like uh, at the very least, there's a big trend, particularly the people coming, the, the younger generation um, coming back to the farm to work the farm, you know, are generally very well educated, um, university degrees, um, you know, in both business as well as um, either agronomics or, you know, or finance and, and saying, well, no, this, this is a multi-million dollar business. You know, I'm either taking my family farm um, that, you know, my parents and my grandparents have run, you know, for the last hundred years. And I'm like, just like every other, you know, every other industry that has their startups, they're bringing like, and we're basically getting this sort of like startup mentality, like filtering through to like, you know, everyone who's running their own business in the culture, they're, they're adopting the same sort of ethos as well. They're seeing, you know, these ag tech companies trying to be like, oh, we want to grow and, you know, supply our stuff for the world. And they're like, well, why shouldn't my products as well be supplied to the world? Why can't I grow my, grow my business like this? And there's no reason why not. And so you've got really, really ambitious um, younger farmers. Um, and when I suppose when we're talking about the age demographics of farmer, younger probably means between their 30s to 50s. Um, but uh, you've, you've got these guys that are looking for, well, where, where's the next bit of land that I can build? How, how can I turn my, you know, what has been my family farm into a professional organization? How can I grow this to be an actual enterprise? And there's, there's a, a lot of that. I, I think there's a lot of that thinking driving consolidation in the market, but also um, farming is one of those businesses where you have um, uh, economies of scale. Like the la effectively, the larger, uh, the larger the farming business, the, the greater the your margins will be, the more sophistication um, that you can, uh, sorry, the more that you can spend on the sophistication and automation, some of your farming practices, the more effectively, you know, you can create a budget for almost R&D and experimentation. There's, there's a whole lot that comes with uh, getting scale. And I think, you know, I think a lot of these farmers see that. And so, you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, while, you know, while farming debt, um, as well as the like farming debt, as well as the farming industry output has effectively tripled over the last 30 or so years, um, farming productivity has also, uh, also doubled, I think. Okay. Um, might need to <laughs> fact check me on that. But yeah. I think it's approximately doubled as well. Um, and this has really come from a lot of, say, the economies, like economies of scale, but also improvement in technologies as well. Yeah, well, I, I, read, I read somewhere on precision farming uh, that if just 10 to 15 percent of farms around the world picked up precision farming, you know, sort of in a full bore way, uh, the yield could jump up to 100 percent, which is it's just wild that if 10 to 15 percent could generate that much of an increase in output 
And, uh, you know, I, I've been studying economics quite a bit recently at university at RMIT. I believe you went there too. Yep. And, um, yeah, efficiency is really a big, big theme for me. And, yeah, who knew farming could be such an exciting, uh, dynamic sphere of, of the sort of financial world. But I think it's very cool what you're doing. And uh, I might just finish up this conversation. I'm conscious of people's time that uh, that you mentioned um, you you met up with some SpaceX people and some NASA people when you're an aerospace engineer. Maybe you could just finish with a little story about going to see a rocket launch in Florida. Oh, ah, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, and and I was still uh, uh, I guess I was still a student at that time as well. So that was part of a. Uh, uh, competition that NASA's been running. Well, NASA and the NIA, they've been running for, I think, 20, 25 years called RASCAL. So it's the Revolutionary Aerospace con- Concepts um, Academic Linkage. I mean, okay. you know, Americans and their acronyms, right? <laughs> yeah, but, they love them. <laughs> they're, they're always acronyms. You know, they come up with the acronym first and like, hey, what words yeah. will fit in? <laughs> but, um, but that's effectively a design competition. Um, and Technically, it's open to only U.S. universities, um, but we were able to participate as a team from RMIT um, because we worked worked with a project with a U.S. university, and so that's uh, that's the way that a lot of international teams have been able to compete. And so I think so. Right, we've been there. Well, up, excuse me, I've been there personally three times. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, my cool. memory's a bit faulty on that. That's, a, that's um, right. And then, uh, as well as my uh, my co-founder Matthew, he's been there uh, four, I think. Um, and so we, I mean, we were the first um, Australian team to compete in that uh, in that competition. And you know, I think the first first uh, first year was designing a lunar habitat that can survive for fifty plus years wow. and support forty people in a orbit around the moon. Um, yeah. And then. Uh, one of the years that we won our category, because they have a few different design categories, like different challenges. Yeah. Um, we won our design category for um, uh, Cislunar uh, Logistics System. So effectively, uh, trucks in space. Like, how do you build wow. a spacecraft in order to ferry, ferry cargo between low Earth orbit and low lunar orbit on a regular basis? You know, what's the most cost effective? How do you design the trajectories? Basically all of like the struct like structural design, propulsion design, you know, sit like trajectory simulation and also budgeting costs, like R and D costs to get it off the ground, then operational costs and expenses. And wow. so basically you build like you build this whole um it's called a design architecture, uh, around these challenges or concepts. And then, you know, you've uh and then you've got uh judges from you know NASA, NIA, SpaceX, Blue Origin. Um, as well as a few other really cool space companies from yeah. the US, um, you know, guys like Spaceworks that work a lot with like uh, Boeing and Lockheed Martin, you know, yeah. design, like helping to do this like design architecture stuff. Um, but uh, so but really where, cool. do, where does the rocket launch come into this? Uh, so uh, the rocket launch, so the really cool thing about the competition is they always schedule the competition, like the finalists get invited um, to spend a few days um on the space coast uh staying at the hilton uh just south of kennedy space center yeah and they always they always time the competition to be um to finish like one day before a rocket launch is scheduled yeah so 
So ideally, you go there, you know, you, uh, you stay at the hotel, you have this big conference, you do your presentations, um, you get to hang out with all the really like interesting and cool space people. Um, and then at the end of the competition, you get to see a rocket launch, which is just so, yeah. so freaking awesome. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, they, we're, we're viewing this from like, you know, 10, like uh, we saw a Delta Four Heavy launch the first time I was there. Okay. Um, so that's a United Launch Alliance uh, vehicle. And so we, uh, we were viewing this from maybe, I think it's 10 miles away. Um, so about 16 kilometers. Still reasonably close. Um, and, and you get a good and yeah, view you know, of the you're landscape. Watch, you're watching yeah. this like tiny little thing on the horizon and you see it go up this bright, you know, bright spot and you're sort of waiting and it's about, you know, I don't know. Yeah, it's maybe about like a, like 20 degrees off the horizon and then you start to hear this huge like rumbling sound and like yeah. the whole, like the whole air just around you is vibrating. You just feel the noise like throughout your whole body and it's just like, and you just see this thing just roaring into the sky. Yeah. It's like, that's pretty oh, cool. Man. Like the real power of the of those things is just phenomenal. It's, yeah. it's just yeah. And if you ever get the chance, uh, it, it's something you just have to witness like okay. firsthand. It's it's just it's just incredible. Yeah, nice one. Um, well, I think I might wrap it up for our our listeners and our watchers. Um, I'm envious that I I, uh, I I would like to see a rocket launch in the future. Um, and yeah, you're obviously a very bright guy doing very cool things, Angus. So um awesome to chat with you and uh and i'm sure we'll we'll eventually run into each other at some point down the track um so it's an absolute pleasure talking to you and uh and good luck with actuary uh, thank you very much and look, it was it was really a pleasure being here it's um uh it, like i really like talking about what we do because i think it's really i think it's really yeah. interesting and cool i mean you know i wouldn't do it otherwise <laughs> um, but for sure look, like uh, ha happy to come on again if people are interested to hear more um but yeah, no, thank you. Okay. Have a good one, Angus. All right. Take care, mate. See you, thank mate. You bye. Too.